The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. And hello, everyone. It's nice to be here. Would you like to move up a little bit, maybe? We're at a small, intimate group today. So what I'd like to share with you this morning is a bit about what I've been thinking about. And hopefully um, I'll say some things and then we'll have some time for discussion. So the topic or the idea is Buddhism for our suffering world. And what I mean by that is not in any way proselytizing. I'm not suggesting that, you know, everybody should be Buddhist. If we were all Buddhists, then, you know, we wouldn't have any suffering. I don't mean that at all. But what I do suggest, and this comes from uh, several years of doing interfaith panels. I work with a group called Islamic Networks Group. And we go into uh, mostly schools, high school colleges, and, and do panels. So there's usually five of us. Um, <clears throat> I'm the Buddhist, there's a Hindu person, a Christian, Jew, and a Muslim. And uh, we present usually sort of an overview of our religion, and then uh, there might be a particular topic that we're focusing on. And I have come through those panels to appreciate the teachings of the Buddha so much. Um, I think there is so much that that the world could gain, <laughs> could use from the teachings of the Buddha. And it doesn't have to be in a Buddhist context. In fact, what I'm going to talk about today are Buddhist principles, but not that we should go out and teach necessarily these Buddhist principles, but more that we should act them. We should be them in, <clears throat> in our lives. It does make a difference, you know, and people do notice. So uh, a few things that I jotted down that create so much suffering in the world. It seems to me, probably you too, there's just an enormous amount of suffering, sometimes unbelievable. We hear it every day on the news, don't we? So, of course, I think the big topic right now is climate change. But along with that goes economic disparity, poverty, hunger, or what we now call food insufficiency, racial injustice, or injustice against any group of people. It could be religious, could be any, any um, form of prejudice against any group of people, or any we-they situations 
typically wars, but also so often um, in our dealings with people, it's a we-they kind of situation and not all of us together. Our relationships with other nations, honesty in our government and in all our relationships, honesty, integrity, being true to to who we are and what we believe. Overpopulation. Somebody said to me the other day that that's the basic problem. Um, I don't know. It certainly is part of the problem. Uh, it seems that that our economic system has led to us putting money or profit ahead of people. So that so often when we're debating about something, particularly now with um, uh, climate change or ecology in general, solutions or things we know we could do that would really help uh, don't get implemented implemented because they cost too much. (laughs) I always sort of marvel at that because what is the cost going to be if we don't (laughs) implement them? And we could just say uh, the three poisons or the three toxins that the Buddha talked about, greed, ill will, and delusion. In a way, that's an umbrella for all of the difficulties that we face. So then my question becomes, how can Buddhism or Buddhist practice help with these issues? And I came up with several things, and maybe you will add to them. The first is the basic premise of the basic practice of non-harming, ahimsa. Not unique to Buddhism, of course. Gandhi taught ahimsa. Um, But I think that's a very foundational practice. The idea of assessing all our actions through the eyes of will this cause harm or will this um, bring happiness? Will it lead to suffering or will it lead to happiness? And when we say non-harming, we mean it broader than just not killing. That's, of course, the, um, the main piece of it. But there's a lot of ways that we harm that don't have anything to do with taking life. And so seeing more clearly or being being awake, being aware to see more clearly what our speech, our actions, and our thoughts, what harm they may or may not be causing. Often with our thoughts, we don't think of them as creating harm. But of course, they do. Particularly, our thoughts about ourselves, which we all have plenty of. 
And when they are very negative or judgmental, <clears throat> that affects us, which in turn then affects how we behave in the world. So non-harming can be a way of life, keeping that always uppermost, whatever we're doing. Seeing, is this creating harm or is it not? We think about, I think about animals, plants, the earth, the atmosphere, um, all these ways that our actions can be creating harm or suffering in some way. And this can be emotional or psychological suffering as well as physical. So just being very aware and paying attention to what what our actions, and whenever I say actions, I mean body, speech, and mind, um, what they might be leading to, what they might be contributing. The second principle that I think is so important and very related is seeing things clearly. You know, in Buddhist practice, we don't have a belief system, a creed. Um, It's not a set of rules for how to live life or what to do. The emphasis is much more on awareness or awakeness. Being awake and seeing things very clearly. Not seeing things through the filter of what we think should be or what we would like or what we wouldn't like, but seeing things just as they are. Bare attention, we call it sometimes. Without judgment. That's a big one because... We live in a society that highly values judgment. And I want to make a distinction between judgment and discriminating wisdom. Judgment is that good, bad, right, wrong. Discriminating wisdom is seeing things clearly and discerning, again, what leads to happiness, what leads to suffering. Seeing things clearly also means not seeing through the lens of a belief system. Again, we see so much suffering in the world created by people that are holding tightly to some belief and then acting out of that and not seeing the whole picture. I think that's another really important piece seeing all of whatever is happening, not just a narrow focus. This is a concern I have actually with, with the you know, strong movement now to have police officers wear cameras. I'm sure in some instances it's going to be very helpful, but a camera sees <laughs> just directly. It doesn't see 
360 degrees. And I'd be willing to bet that we're going to come up against all kinds of difficulties because the camera sees one thing and people on the periphery see something else. So remembering to try to be aware and see the entire picture, not just a piece of it, or not just the piece that, that concerns us. Keeping an open mind, seeing all of the causes and conditions that go into any situation. Also, recognizing our own biases, our own, um, our own conditioning. We all have conditioning. We all have biases. And we may not be able to eliminate them, but what we can do is see them. Because if we're aware that something is a bias, then we don't have to act on it. We have the choice then. Okay, that's a bias of mine. I know that that comes up in this particular situation. But I don't have to necessarily act on it. I can set it aside or I can just expand my vision so that I see more than just my bias. So another piece, as I see it, is the emphasis on relationships over rules. Um, What always comes to mind is, it's my understanding that the Buddha was basically vegetarian. But because he lived off the generosity of people, if he was eating at somebody's house and they served meat, he ate it. He didn't refuse because he was vegetarian. Um, He accepted what people generously offered. And there was always this emphasis on the relationship between people rather than a rule about something or that's a ritual or a rite or that something should be done this particular way. I'm afraid there's too many traditions now that are just the opposite. All the emphasis is on the rule, the rigid belief system or ritual or whatever, and forgetting the relationship of people. It seems to be true in our Congress Whereas it used to be, at least that's my understanding, that um, uh, people from each side of the aisle could debate and argue vigorously during the day and then go out at the end of the day and have dinner together and, (laughs) you know, socialize and really enjoy each other. They knew or they were experiencing that they were people first and that their beliefs or their ideas were secondary. And it seems, to a large extent, that we've lost that. 
that now the belief, the dogma, is what's important in the relationships. Forget it. So that reminds me, too, when we do these interfaith panels, um, we always give uh, um, surveys, or what do you call critiques, to the students. And invariably, what they respond is the most important thing was seeing the five of us up there together, obviously enjoying each other, liking each other, no matter what differences our traditions might have. Um, it's clear that we like each other, and that's, that's the single most impressive thing to people. So for me, I think the next most important principle is the idea of non-attachment, of letting go. This is what the Buddha discovered as the source of our suffering, our unwillingness to let go, our holding, grasping on to anything. Whether it's a, a physical thing, or a concept, an idea, a belief, or this I, (laughs) this particular life stream or being, holding so tightly to identity view, then we have to defend it. And that leads to enormous suffering because it needs to conflict. But when we hold ourselves and our ideas very lightly, and I don't mean by that that um, that we don't take them seriously or we don't think they're important, but we hold them lightly rather than so dogmatically or so tightly. So again, with other traditions, we can can share what some of our differences are. Some things, you know, obviously, different traditions see very, very differently. And yet we can still respect each other. We can still see that there's a place for each tradition, for each practice. And the problem comes when a tradition (laughs) thinks they have the answer, the only answer, and everybody else is doomed. That leads to conflict. And sometimes, you know, killing. So holding ourselves and our ideas very lightly, not being so attached to them. And then wise speech. This is one we can can see a lot of every, every day. And as you know, in Buddhist practice, wise speech is much more than just being truthful. All traditions, I think, 
have the precept or the understanding of not lying, of not speaking falsely. But I don't know another tradition that expands that as the Buddha did to include speech that is kind and gentle as well, that is respectful, that includes deep listening, that listening is a part of wise speech. Because if we don't listen well, how can we respond well? Often when we don't listen, we respond out of our preconceived notions or out of, uh, again, a belief system or an idea that may have nothing to do with what is actually going on. We consider whether our speech is timely because sometimes it is truthful and it could be helpful, but it's not the right time. And to say it might just create more uproar, more conflict. So considering the timing and considering with that, is the other person or persons going to be able to hear it? And if not, don't say it. I understand that the Dalai Lama uh, recently said something like this, that he had something to offer. I think it was to us, to the United States. But he knew that it wasn't the right time, that it wasn't going to be heard. And so he chose not to say it. We can consider silence also as part of wise speech. Knowing when to be silent. And honoring the silence. Sometimes silence can be extremely powerful. More so than anything we could say. And so knowing when to be silent. When to honor the silent. And when, of course, it's important to speak up. Because there certainly are those times. Then compassion. Compassion, of course, is huge, and compassion is what Karen Armstrong discovered is the um, uh, is common to all of the traditions. All traditions have, in some form or other, a, an emphasis on compassion. And for Buddhist practice, we could say compassion as well as the other Brahma Viharas. In some ways, I see compassion as being more than love or loving kindness. It includes loving kindness, of course, but compassion has that extra piece of the impulse, the desire to alleviate suffering. So we see suffering, and again, it can be anywhere. It can be with animals, it can be the earth. Anywhere we see suffering, there is this movement, quivering of the heart, we say, that wishes to alleviate that suffering. And it's most frequently represented by Kuan Yin. I don't know where our Kuan Yin... 
she got relegated to the back room. <laughs> well, Kuan Yin represents um, the compassion, the one who hears the cries of the world. And can, can we all hear the cries of the world and open our hearts with compassion? So often the instinct is we hear the cries of the world and we want to close off, protect ourselves, can't stand it, can't hear anymore. And granted, there is a time for that. We can get totally overwhelmed by all the 24-hour news of all the suffering in the world. So it is important to take breaks, to take care of ourselves. But that's very different from turning away from the suffering or ignoring it or pretending it's not there because I don't know how to deal with it. Granted, there's a lot of suffering that there's no easy answer about how to deal with it or what, what we can do. Nevertheless, we can keep our hearts open, keep our hearts open to the suffering. And in that way, what to do typically arises or becomes apparent. But when we close ourselves off, there's no chance we're doing anything because we're protecting, we think, our heart or ourselves and we're removed from the situation. Jack Cornfield says we have to let our hearts break over and over again. I love that. I say it often because we think we shouldn't let our hearts break. We think that we need to protect ourselves so that our hearts don't break. And I love when he says we have to let them break over and over because that releases the compassion. And I think it also says to us that that we can bear it. We can have our hearts break and, and we'll survive. We'll make it. We often think we won't. But we will, we can. And how much good benefit is done in the world from people who have had their hearts break and then that's the impetus to go out and do something in the hope that other people won't have to suffer that same uh, heartbreaking situation. So we do our best to keep our hearts open to everyone and everything. That means being fully present, being awake, responding as well as we can, not reacting, not this knee-jerk reaction, but responding out of our wisdom, out of our compassion, out of um, a heart 
that turns away from nothing. This too, we sometimes say. This too. This too. And not closing off to anything or anyone. So I think very closely related to the Brahma Viharas, to compassion, is forgiveness. Huge topic in itself. Being willing to let go of ah, (laughs) my muscles are cramping. Being willing to let go of grievances. Something done to us. And that doesn't mean that we're saying it doesn't matter or denying that it happened. My goodness, I need a hot tub. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to encourage me to sit. (laughs) I might have to do that in a minute, yeah. Okay. Um, Being willing to let go of any any resentment, anger, ill will that we might be holding. And as I started to say, that doesn't mean that we're saying whatever happened is okay or that we're denying what happened, but recognizing that holding on to it hurts us. The other person may not even know. (laughs) But holding that so tightly for us hurts us. And there are incredible stories, I won't go into them now, of people being willing to let go of horrendous, horrendous actions that were done. I was, I was impressed when I first heard that the parents of a young eight-year-old boy that was, I can't remember if he was killed, I think he was killed by the, by the Boston bomber, and they did not want the death penalty. And I thought, wow, you know. Then I found out <laughs> it wasn't that they were opposed to the death penalty. They didn't want to suffer through the, the um, appeals and the drawn-out process. They weren't thinking of him. In fact, they want him to, to have prison without possibility of parole. They want him to suffer. But there are other cases, and there was with the Amish, remember a few years ago, in the school bombing, Mm -hmm. that um, lost several children. And yet, they talked about and acted on forgiveness. It's It's a... It's a huge task. It's a tall order. But being willing to forgive is a way of acknowledging that we too have harmed 
that we too have done things that have not always been in somebody's best interest. That we are capable as well of, of serious harm at times. It reminds me of Thich Nhat Hanh's poem, Do You Know, Please Call Me By My True Names? I am the 12-year-old girl, refugee on a small boat, who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate. And I am the pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving. I am a member of the Politburo with plenty of power in my hands. And I am the man who has to pay his debt of blood to my people, dying slowly in a forced labor camp. Please call me by my true names so I can hear all my cries and my laughs at once, so I can see that my joy and pain are one. pretty powerful, isn't it? Being willing to see that we all have both the young girl and the pirate within us. I remember when my daughter was very young, hearing a psychiatrist, I think it was, give a talk about how how there was a fine line between... (laughs) child abuse and not abusing. And it was a way of acknowledging that we all get frustrated. We all get angry. We all have the impulse, perhaps, to harm when we're frustrated. And it was a fine line between those that did it and those that did not. Again, that recognition that, that we're all more similar than we are different and that, that uh, we all have both within us. So we don't, again, create this we-they. Um, this group is so... Um, horrendous and does such horrible things and we are so good we are so kind and gentle and pious right until something happens to us and we lose our temper so not making that we they separation but we're all interdependent and interconnected and we all, what we do affects each other. None of us is, lives in isolation. And so remembering that what we do affects everyone around us, for good or ill. As Thich Nhat Hanh says, we enter our. 
This is becoming especially important with ecology, where we're seeing that the alleviation of one species can totally change the ecology of that particular area. There was, um, a year or so ago, a beautiful video on YouTube about the return of the wolves to Yellowstone. Many saw it. And, and it showed how the, the environment had changed. The course of the river had changed because of um, taking out all the wolves from Yellowstone. It changed the, the predator and prey balance. It changed the, um, uh, the grasses along the banks of the river um, that were not being eaten down. And when they returned, things began to return to, um, to the way they were. So remembering that our actions do matter. This is basically karma. That what we do does matter. And it can be for the good or it can be for the ill, but it matters. So remembering that. Buddhist practice also puts a strong emphasis on individual responsibility. There's not some higher being or some other force out there um, that will direct things, but that it's up to us. If we're going to change the course of, of our ecological history, the course of climate change, it's up to us. We need to take action. We need to be aware and we need to take our responsibility for whatever changes need to be made. Again, Thich Nhat Hanh says, peace is every step. And so in Buddhist practice, we don't say that the, the ends justify the means, that every single step must be done with integrity, with all the principles we've been talking about, non-harming. And it's not okay to, um, you know, tell uh, maybe little white lies, but tell lies along the way because the end is going to be better or whatever. It's important that, that we do, we act with integrity with every step, and we let go of what the outcome will be. We can't, we can't always know. We can be responsible for our actions and do what we believe is best, but we can't control the outcome. And so remembering that, that every step is important. He says, we don't create peace. We live peace.
honor, respecting everyone, all of life. I think Buddhism puts a greater emphasis on all of life, although as I hear my fellow panelists talk, um, many traditions talk about honoring all of life. It doesn't always get put into action, but, um, but the belief is there, the idea is there, that all of life matters. There is equality. There is the importance of justice, of tolerance. And partly we do this by letting go of labels, dropping all the labels that we so easily put on ourselves and others. So that instead of Jewish and Christian and Muslim and Hindu and Buddhist, we are people first. And we might practice these traditions, but it's a practice. It's not who we are. We are humans first. And caring about all humans. As you remember, the Buddha refused to follow the caste system. He refused to say that, you know, some were better or some were higher than, um, than other people. He said the only way we judge that is by people's hearts. Are people's hearts open? That's what's important. Not whether they're from this caste or that caste or this tradition or that tradition or this profession or that profession but that all of us are equal, we're all important, we're all, we all have a place, we all have, we are all part of this incredible network of life, and that no, no position is less or better than any other position. That's pretty radical, isn't it? <laughs> because we live in a culture, in a world, that very much relies on hierarchy in so many, so many ways. And it's not okay to be the inchworm, as John Semedo talks about. We all have to aspire to some high <laughs> attainment rather than recognizing that that we all have a role to play. And we're all important, no matter what that role. Um, I want to be sure to leave some time, so I think I'll just say one more thing, and that is, I don't know if any of you um, belong to Buddhist Peace Fellowship, but I have recently gotten two very lengthy emails uh, about a Buddhist visit to the White House on May 14th. Has anybody heard of that? Huh? Yeah? Through BPF? Uh, through <laughs> really? Great. Yes. Jack was there. Lama Suryadas was there. Tara Brock was there. Um, 
Alan Sanaki from Berkeley Zen Center was there. Um, the the co-directors of BPF were there. Quite amazing, the first time ever that a group of Buddhists went to the White House. Huh? That's amazing. It did not. I know. I know. They didn't actually meet with Obama. Um, I'm not sure who they met with, <laughs> lower level. But hey, it's <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's a beginning. It's a beginning. And um, my doing this talk had nothing to do with that. Um, but I thought when I got the email, I thought, wow, that's really <laughs> timely. <laughs> Hello. Uh, back in the 70s and 80s, I was working for semiconductors, and people hated me because, you know, they were protesting outside the plant because they were making chips that go into missiles. But those same chips went also went into medical devices that help people, and they are, they're, right now they're in your iPhone, <laughs> and the, they're actually very enabling. Yeah. So there's some blindsided to some people that they don't see they only see something on the surface but they don't see what's underlining the, the technology and technology can be an enabler it can actually help people with a lot of suffering um, that's, that's true of so many things um, and I think it's part of seeing things clearly yeah also fast forward last Sunday I went to the farmer's market and there was a guy standing there and he had blind on his thing and deaf and he had a cane, and he was in El Camino, and there was a, and he was stopped there. And then I was wondering, how does he know when the cross? If he's really blind, I mean, I don't know how what level he was. How does he do that? I mean, if I was blind and I couldn't, I wouldn't know what to do. But the technology, maybe he has, maybe there's some technology that he has. I don't know about maybe. I thought that was amazing. Well, sometimes, too, with lights, there's a sound. No, he's blind and deaf. And deaf. So how did they do it? Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's, there may be some sensors or something people mm. can wear, but, but that's just an example of why I think technology is great. And, oh, one last thing. You should have an... You want to spice up your panel? Put an atheist on your panel. You know, we, we have talked about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, how amazing that this was your topic this morning. I have just returned last night from a weekend at Oberlin College, my 50th reunion. Oh. Fifty years ago, Martin Luther King Jr. was the commencement speaker when we graduated. Um, I just read something about Oberlin. Yes, because the First Lady was yeah, at the commencement the and delivered an address, although she was not the featured commencement speaker, so-called. Oh. Um, I was, one of the things she said that is sticking with me, is, uh, she referred to the um, political uh, situation, both in Washington and elsewhere in the country, as the noise or the noisy realm, she said it was important not to shy away from the noise, but to run toward it. Mm. Wow. And I've been thinking about 
since I heard that yesterday, I've been thinking about whether I have been running toward it or running away from it. And if so, how? And I've also, your talk got me thinking about how much I have tried to do uh, to support or affirm political, social causes online, and, I, and I'm all of a sudden very skeptical of what I've been doing because of what you said about relationships. You don't have much, I don't have much of the same kind of relationship with people because they're all unknown to me mm -hmm. when I sign a petition that's online for something or other as I do when I meet with people, whether that's in a meeting or a demonstration or whatever. So I'm trying to, I'm, this is very helpful talk this morning to um, help me address some of those questions about how I am currently active in political and social issues. Thank you. Good, good. And the thing about Buddhist practice is that, that we don't have answers. We just talk about seeing things clearly and trust that people will come to their own conclusion. I th yeah, let me add, yeah, let me add one thing and I, yeah. that, that I don't know that you did mention except peripherally in, in talking about non-attachment. Um, I think um, joy and humor are very important in the noise realm in order to um, stay less attached <laughs> to my ideas. Yes. <laughs> yes. Right. You know, what is that right. phrase, don't believe everything I think? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't heard that, but I like that. Yeah, we so often think, just because we think it, it must be true. <laughs> yeah. Anybody else? Well, I think related to what both of you said, um, <clears throat> and the understanding that Buddhism doesn't have answers, but it is... Uh, a way of helping us to see things clearly. Our mindfulness practice. And I, um, I think of it as ethical mindfulness. That it's mindfulness with wisdom, with some understanding. So it's not just, oh yeah, I see this, I see that, I see that. And it has no effect on me. But I see it and I understand in the broader context what that creates or what that means or what happens. Or if I don't know the broader context, then I make it my job to find out, to learn, to explore, and get a broader understanding seeing things with compassion. So again, not just seeing what's happening, but with 
understanding and compassion for the situation. And this sort of goes, uh, I think, with the relationship part. Um, I remember a long time ago hearing a, uh, I think it was a therapist, speak about she had made a commitment to herself that she would never, ever see someone abusing a child and not do something about it. And so she was in the airport, and there was a woman totally frazzled that was, um, I don't remember exactly what she was doing, probably hitting her child. And the woman wanting to stop what was happening, but not make the mother bad or wrong or create this we they, went up to her and said something like, I can see that you are really tired and really frustrated. Let me take your child for a few minutes and, and you go sit down and relax or some, something like that. And I thought that was so beautiful. So she kept her intent to interfere, intervene, not allow the abuse to go on. But she didn't make the mom bad or wrong. There was compassion. There was understanding that, of course, if she's traveling alone and the baby's crying or whatever was going on, totally understandable. But, but not let it go on. And that's, that's just a little example. If we can hold that in terms of the suffering in our world so that we refuse not to intervene but we do it in such a way that does not create enemies or does not make the other person wrong. And of course there's example after example after example of, of how we might do that. But it's after nine, I mean 11. (laughs) I was here Thursday night, so I think that's what I was thinking. Uh, So thank you for your attention. Have a good day.